Side note. Welcome, everybody, to Park Community Church. Uh, my name's Rafe. I'm the pastor here at Park South Loop. Uh, we are going to be in John chapter 3 today. John chapter 3 as we close out this sermon series. Man, has it been a good sermon series. We have been asking some of the hardest questions that people both inside and outside of the Christian faith have about Christianity. Questions that we all ask. Is there a God? Was Jesus God? Why is there pain and suffering? Is there a meaning to life? We've gone through and we tried to look at both what do the scriptures say and then the evidence around the world that will help us understand the questions, uh, these questions and provide some kind of answer to them. And today uh, we're getting to what probably is the most important question on the list, one that we've probably answered many times in many ways, but we're going to try to take a, a head-on approach to it today. The question is, can I know God personally? So if you will, open up to John chapter 3. If you need a Bible, go ahead, raise your hand. We got a usher in the back. Travis, I see Travis. Brian, maybe. No, just Travis. Uh, could I get a hand out Bibles? Just keep your hand raised. Page 887. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we now come before you and we are praying for you to have your way with us. We want to be underneath the authority of the Word, not the preacher, the Word, and so would your word speak? I pray that your word would literally do what your word says it can do. It can penetrate through dividing bone from marrow, soul from spirit, right down to the inner crevices of our heart, revealing what needs to be revealed inside of us. God, I pray for many people in this room right now today that we would have an encounter with Jesus today, that it would be that kind of day. That we would leave this place saying Jesus was there. We, we, we talked. He had his way with me, and I'm changed because of it. I pray that in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Story number one. No, I'm not willing to do that. He was succinct and clear. I inquired what he felt as he imagined telling his wife about the affair he was having. I feel terrified, he said. Of what I asked, he could only describe in vague terms the abject sense of humiliation he would have to endure should the illicit relationship come to light. Story number two. She didn't get in and I'm worried about what this will mean for her future. This coming from a mother who had worked diligently to do her part to help her daughter gain entrance to her top school choice. This might be understandable except for the fact that her daughter was only three years old. Those of us in Chicago who are helping our kids get into school know about that one. Story number three. He began drinking when he was 13. He had two DUIs by the time he was 20. The second one landing him in jail for a month. That was more than two decades ago before he met Jesus. But in the last five years, the bourbon had begun to flow again most evenings after everyone went to bed. How exactly would he tell the people of his congregation where he had been the pastor for 15 years? Jim Beam seemed to be the only thing that helped him hang on in the face of a burnout he felt shepherding his flock. These three stories mark the opening chapter of a book called The Soul of Shame. Uh, if you want a good book to read, uh, one that will make you really think about your faith, I recommend it, Soul of Shame, by Kurt Thompson. What is shame? You know, that's one of those words that I think we throw around and don't necessarily ever take the time to dig in. 
really expose this thing for what it is and understand what it is. Shame rattles around inside each of our hearts. It, it, it sits very near and dear to our hearts. And if we never have conversations around what shame is, we'll never fully understand the Christian faith or what Jesus Christ has done for us. The two things go really hand in hand in many ways. Shame, everyone in this room carries it. Shame is that thing inside of you that makes you think, what if they truly knew the mistakes I've made in my life? What if it all got suddenly exposed to the people that I don't want knowing those areas of my life? Shame is that thing inside of you that hopes that the, thing, the things you think never come to light. Shame is the thing inside of you that, that wonders, am I, am I good enough? Do, do other people think I'm good enough? Do, do they know that I don't know? Do they know that I don't feel like I fit in or that I don't feel like I'm good enough? Every one of us has shame. What, what do you carry around with you today? Perhaps you've never taken the time to reflect on your own life and reflect on the things that you do carry around in shame. Maybe a good way to ask, answer that question is this. What are the areas in your life that you're unable to be vulnerable about with anybody? What are the things in your life that you are unable to vulnerably open up about and share and discuss with another person? That's where shame is wreaking havoc in your life. Today we wrap up what I think has been a pretty wonderful sermon series. And the last question we're trying to answer is, can I know God personally? Now, I think this question is so central. It is literally the central question of the Bible, but I also think that the wording of it is very funny because I don't think too many people are walking around the streets of Chicago who don't know the Lord saying, can I know God personally? I don't think that's the words they use. But I actually think that their life demonstrates that's the exact question they're asking. They just don't have words to put to it yet. This is what we are all asking. And, and central to this question is this relationship with God. Can I know God personally? A relationship with God unhinged from the shackles of shame. That's the question. Can I have a relationship with God unhinged from the shackles of all that stuff I carry around with me that I hope no one ever finds out about? Can God still love me in the midst of it? That's the question that we all have. Is that possible? At the heart of the Bible is this person, Jesus Christ. He, he's unlike every other religious icon or religious figure that's ever lived. He, he, he flipped the book on religion. He came and he demonstrated God in the flesh, the ethic of love in person, demonstrating what it looks like. And he went to the cross for you and for me in order that we might have a relationship with him. That's what he's accomplished. But many of us still live in so much shame. So what's going on? In order to answer that question, we're going to look at a man named Nicodemus. If ever there was a fascinating figure and a man that I think a lot of people at Park Community Church need to look into his life, it's Nicodemus. So let's look in John chapter 3. I'm going to start in verses 1 and 2. We'll walk through this a little slowly. John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things, these signs that you do, unless God is with him. Now, if ever there was a man who outwardly had the, uh, the, the outward expression of having his life together in a good moral way, it was Nicodemus. His name, Nicodemus, literally means victor of the people. That's what it means. Or you could say it means conqueror or superior one. Imagine walking around with that name, superior one. Does it give you a sense of what he thought about himself? That's who Nicodemus was. 
I don't know what his parents was thinking when they named him that, but he got the name. He was a Pharisee, we're told. Now, what was a Pharisee? A Pharisee was essentially first century pastors in many ways. I, don't, I hate drawing a direct connection between Pharisees and pastors because Jesus had a lot of bad things to say about the Pharisees, so it's not a direct line, okay? But, but they were the, the spiritual guides. They were the ones who were, who, were, who were doing the teaching on the Sabbath when they came together oftentimes. They, they were the ones that were, were setting the pace for much of the community of what it looked like to be a follower of God. They were the ones who everyone else thought had it together. A guy like Nicodemus would have fasted twice a week, spent two hours in prayer a day at the temple. He would have tithed on every single thing he had in his life. This was the epitome of a religious man. Everyone would have looked up to him. Just think about that. Before we break Nicodemus' faith apart, I just want you to get this picture. He was the guy. It was Nicodemus. And he was a ruler of the Jews, right? That's what it says in verse 1. He was the guy that had it together. If anyone was doing religion the right way, it was Nicodemus. He was the example for everybody else. He had a good reputation as a man with good moral principles. Got his life together. Then in verse 2, we learn that Nicodemus comes to Jesus, but we get this little detail. It's kind of fascinating. He came to Jesus by night. Why would a man like Nicodemus come to Jesus at night? It's such an interesting little detail that we oftentimes read over in this story, but it's actually critical for us. You see, the Pharisees technically didn't go out at night. It was a very dangerous thing to go out at night as a Pharisee because they were trying to live by the Old Testament law to a T. They tried to do everything the Old Testament law said. That was their way of doing religion. And the thing about going out at night is there were a lot of ways you could accidentally become ceremonially unclean according to the Old Testament. So, for example, if you touched a dead animal or a carcass that might be laying on the side of the street, we don't have that too much in Chicago, but in first century, there were a lot of dead animals that might be laying on the side of the street. And if you bump into one as a Pharisee, well, you're unclean for a few weeks. You've got to go through a long process before you can get back into the swing of your daily routine. So Pharisees, by and large, didn't go out at night. Here's Nicodemus. He risks it all. He's got something in his heart. He's got to get to Jesus to figure this out. And the reality is, is that he's coming to Jesus at night because he's got something to hide. This is why he didn't come in the day. He, he doesn't want anyone else to know that he's going to Jesus. That's what shame is. Shame makes you hide. Shame is fear of other people, of what they might think of you, and feeling like, you, you know, I hope they don't know that I've got questions. See, a guy like Nicodemus, I know this guy because he's a lot of me. When you, when you live in a space where, where everyone is coming to you for the answers, you don't want to come off as if you don't have the answers. But the problem is, we have a lot of questions. <laughs> I got a lot of questions. I'm on a journey just like everyone else in this room. Nicodemus was on a journey. journey. But how dangerous and how vulnerable might it be if he came out and said, I got questions. He's supposed to be the leader of the Jews. So he hides himself. Comes by the cover of night. In Kurt Thompson's book that I referenced earlier, he's talking about shame. He says this, whether it's the involution into the silence of our own minds or the literal turning away from someone with a downcast facial expression, with eyes lowered, shame leads us to cloak ourselves with invisibility to prevent further intensification of the emotion. What does Nicodemus have to be ashamed about? Well, I I think we're starting to get the heart of this man He's the one who's supposed to have it all together. But the problem is, Jesus has been coming around, and Nicodemus has been seeing the life of this man and the ethic of this man, Jesus. 
In the very last chapter, right at the end of chapter 2, chapter 2, verses 13 through 22, what does Jesus do? He goes into the temple. Who would have been at the temple? The Pharisees. That was their stomping ground. And he goes into the temple and sees that basically a bunch of people have turned God's holy sanctuary into a get-rich-quick scheme, and they're ripping people off for money. And Jesus walks into the temple, flips over the money changers' tables, and says, how dare you turn the house of God into a den of thieves? And I imagine Nicodemus just looking at that saying, oh, look at that guy. But why don't I have that? What does he have that I don't have? That must have haunted him a little bit, don't you think? See, here's Nicodemus going through religion day in, day out. Tithe, 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 pray, 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 go to temple, go to temple, go to temple, go to temple. Doing all the things he's supposed to do. Religious duty, religious duty, religious duty, religious duty. Missing the beauty of all of it. He's so stuck in the legalistic following of God's rules and he's missing the beauty and the power of what all of it was designed for in the first place. But he's made a name for himself as a leader of the Jews, so he's stuck. He doesn't know what to do. How do I change this thing? And see, the Pharisees didn't like Jesus because Jesus was talking kind of trash about them. That might be a little high. I shouldn't say that. Jesus, Jesus didn't have nice things to say about the Pharisees, okay? And so his peers don't like Jesus, so he's got to go at night. He wants to know what is different about this man, but he can't ask him in the day. And then this midnight encounter, and I love what Jesus does. Jesus, I imagine in this moment, Nicodemus is coming up at night looking for where Jesus is, and then he sees Jesus and they lock eyes, and you can just imagine Jesus staring this man down and making Nicodemus, the ruler of the Jews, suddenly feel like a very small person as he's being stared down by Jesus. And Jesus, without hesitation, says this, truly, truly, verse three, that's amen, amen, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, that's a shocking statement in this moment, isn't it? Nicodemus didn't ask a question. He, he, all he said was, I see, Jesus, that you have powerful signs around you. But Jesus stares this man down as if he knows this man's heart better than Nicodemus knows his own heart. And he speaks right to him. He says, you've got to be born again. Now, that's not just shocking because it's a, it's kind of feels like it's coming out of left field in terms of the conversation Nicodemus is having with Jesus. It's shocking because he's talking to Nicodemus. You know, if Jesus would have said this to some of the other guys that he, that he hung out with, Jesus was always hanging out with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes and all the people that, that were kind of the outcasts of society, outcasts of at least the religious society, you know, the people that typically kind of came to the, the religious rituals like what we're doing today. Jesus was always hanging out with them. It'd be one thing if Jesus said that to Matthew, the tax collector, the guy who was overcharging people on the local tax, making a, a killing off of everyone else's money, stealing from them with henchmen. It'd be one thing to tell Matthew you've got to be born again. What about one of the prostitutes? You know, if Jesus said, you know, hey, you've got to be born again, have a whole change to your life, that would be one thing. But he says it to Nicodemus, a guy who was re dutifully, religiously following all the rules. Nicodemus responds the only way that I think a person could respond if they were being honest in this conversation. Verse 4, Nicodemus says to him, How can a man be born again when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? I don't think that's sarcasm. I think, Jesus, I think Nicodemus is saying, What are you saying? I don't get it. i got to be born again? Jesus, explain this to me. 
And then Jesus explains it. Now what Jesus says next is the explanation. And, and for us with our modern ears, we might not catch it the way Nicodemus would have. I'm going to help walk us through it. But let me read to you what Jesus said. He's speaking on Nicodemus' terms. He's literally going to be almost quoting out of the Old Testament right now. Jesus says, John chapter 3, verses 5 to 8. Nicodemus, you want an answer of what I mean to be born again? Here it is. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Let me repeat that. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now that sounds like it's kind of tricky to discern. What did Jesus mean? But Nicodemus would have known the Old Testament very well. He was a teacher of the Old Testament. He would have learned and memorized the promises of God, and he would have known the passage in Ezekiel that Jesus is referencing here very well. Ezekiel chapter 36 reads this, I will sprinkle, this is a promise of God to the Jewish people, all of them, not just the people who weren't the leaders, but the, all the people, a guy like Nicodemus as well. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. This was written hundreds of years before this moment. And all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Jesus is telling one of the most prominently religious people of his day that his heart was desperately wicked and that all his goodness amounted to nothing. Okay. Jesus is quoting an Old Testament passage that said you got to have a new heart because your heart's wrong, your heart's broken, and until you get an entire new heart from God, any goodness you do is actually rooted in wickedness. And Jesus is saying that to the most religiously prominent figure of his day, Nicodemus. Most of us would think about religion and goodness the same way Nicodemus approached Jesus. We think of ourselves generally as good moral people. Just That's how we most of us think about ourselves. We think of ourselves as good, moral people. But the reality is, and what Jesus is exposing in Nicodemus, is that it's very possible to be outwardly good. To be an outwardly good person in the eyes of everybody else, and yet be utterly sinful. Why? How can you outwardly do all the right things, and yet inwardly be utterly sinful? Well, for Nicodemus, it's pretty easy, actually. He made quite a, lot, quite a life for himself by being a good guy, didn't he? Follow the rules, become a leader of the people. Follow the rules, have a job, pretty stable living in those days. Follow the rules, be lifted up in everyone else's sight. Everyone wants their kids to be like you. Follow the rules, do it good enough, and everywhere you go, people pat you on the back and say how good a job you're doing. Follow the rules and, uh, you know, you can have the prominent seats at all the tables you go to. You're kind of the guest of honor wherever you go. Well, that's an interesting motivation to be a good guy, isn't it? If I just follow the rules, life can go pretty good for me. I don't actually have to deal with the fact that I'm broken, wicked inside and I need a whole new heart. I can outwardly put on a veneer like I'm good. I got it together. I've got this whole thing going and really be working for my own glory. Be building an entire life, not built on the foundation of God, built on the foundation of myself and trying to aspire to my own glory. So he sneaks around at night because he's curious about Jesus. 
Something about Jesus is different than what Nicodemus has been doing, and he's got to figure it out. How many of you can relate to Nicodemus? He's one of the most relatable 21st century guys in the entire New Testament. How many of you can relate to Nicodemus? He saw his goodness, his wisdom, his I got it all togetherness as part of his whole shtick. This is what he did. He was the good guy, and everyone knew it, and he loved that he was the good guy. His name meant superior one. You guys, we're Park Community Church. <laughs> we do this. I do this. We do this all the time. We come to church. We go to Bible study. We read our Bible. We do all the right things. Religious duty, religious duty, religious duty, religious duty. Make it all look good on the outside. Follow the rules. It can go well with you in this crowd. You do it really well, people start to pat you on your back. You do it really well, you might even get a pulpit. Religious duty, religious duty, religious duty, religious duty. No power, no beauty, no majesty. And then one day you see the real Jesus and you go, I'm missing it, I'm missing it. How did I miss it in all of this? Is Nicodemus relatable to you? A veneer of moralism with a rotten stump. Go to church, be at the right places, all the while, so much shame. You know why? Because when you're Nicodemus, you're bottling your shame up. When you're Nicodemus, you're going through religious duty. And, and when you need to put on an outward veneer as if you have it together, there's only one thing you can do with all the bad stuff in your life. Bury it as deep as you possibly can. Hide it. Just shove it deep down in there. Don't let it come out, especially in this room. Don't let it come out in this room. That would be like the end of the world if it came out in this room. So if you never deal with the sin, if it's never been exposed and dealt with on the cross, the only thing you can do is bury it beneath. Bury it down inside. Man like Nicodemus must have buried that way down deep inside. He had figured a way to get it all together. But here's what happens. If you start burying your sin deep inside and you lack vulnerability and you carry that around with you, that's called shame. Now you got these secrets. Now you got this part of your life that you don't want exposed to anybody. You hope it doesn't come out one day. One day, it breaks. It's like taking a suitcase and trying to shove clothes into the suitcase. You're just pushing it in and you're trying to get that zipper closed around it and it just doesn't fit in, but you just shove it in further and further and you're just trying to, and then, and then you, you shove it and you just get it in there and then you're walking through the airport as if everything's okay. Yeah. I got three years worth of clothes on this thing, but hey, let's go, Right? But then what happens? One day the seam rips. The whole thing explodes. When the seam rips, it reveals that you never dealt with your sin. You just buried it so down deep inside and tried to fool everyone around you like you were a good guy. And the reason you were doing it was for your own glory, not for Jesus' glory, because it paid to be good. It pays in life to be good. When we bury our sin beneath an outward appearance of morality, eventually the seam rips. Then one day you're sitting in your home, and Tim Keller says this so well, one day you're sitting in your home and you do something so awfully wicked, and you sit down at night and you say, how did I do that? I, I can't believe I did that. Where did that come from? The reason you did it is because all you did is buried your sin inside. It was bound to come out at some point. You never dealt with it. You never exposed it. Let it be met by love. All you did was buried it deep inside. You open up the bottle of vodka you promised you put down years ago. 
You storm out of the house from your family angry because the stress was so great and you sleep somewhere else from where your spouse is sleeping. Something you promised you'd never do. You start flirting with a coworker and you go home at night. You think, how is this possible? You can't manage sin. You cannot manage sin. It catches up with you. So when Jesus looks at Nicodemus, he sees a man whose seams are bursting apart. He sees a man who's got everyone else's eyes on him, thinking he's the guy. He's the guy. He's got it. And Jesus sees all the seams ripping apart. He sees it's all about to fall apart. And he looks at Nicodemus. He says, your foundation's off. You're building your own glory. You've got to be born again. Nicodemus, you want to be shaken up? You haven't been born again yet. I can offer that to you. You must be born again. There's no reorganizing of the suitcase. There's no repacking of the suitcase. The thing is not working. Nicodemus, you must be born again. This language of being born again, we, we could spend weeks on what Jesus meant by being born again. And I've talked about this passage many times in this church. I think it means a lot of different things. I think in one way, it connects us back to the Garden of Eden. I want to take us there today. Garden of Eden, in some sense, is kind of this birth. It's this new beginning. It's this entire fresh start to creation. God makes Adam and Eve, and he places them in the garden. And there's this beautiful verse in chapter 2, verse 25, that's central to the conversation today. He makes Adam and Eve, places them in the garden in this beautiful relationship with each other and with God. And then God says this in Scripture, The man and his wife were both naked and unashamed. Hear the linking of those two words. They were naked and they were unashamed. Now certainly that has to do partially with the fact they weren't wearing clothes. But the nakedness goes far beyond that. They were exposed. It was all of them. There, there, was, there was nothing that had been buried down inside and hidden. All of them, every part of them, their story, the fullness of who they were, their full personality, them just being them on full display, they were utterly naked before each other. See, nakedness is all about being completely vulnerable before another person. Adam and Eve had nothing to hide with each other. They were naked and unashamed. What that means is there was a perfect relationship. They saw each other for who they were and they were fully loved both with each other and between God. There was this perfect three-person relationship, God, Adam, and Eve, where they were fully known and fully loved. This is true intimacy. See, shame blocks you from true intimacy because you feel like you've got to hide something. And when you carry around secrets of your life that you don't want to tell anyone, especially those that are closest to you, especially your church family, it means we're not being authentic with each other. It means we're not being vulnerable and we've lost intimacy. We don't have what Adam and Eve had. They were naked and they were unashamed. But then sin enters. And let's, let's see what the very first thing that happens when sin enters in. Genesis chapter 3, 7 to 9. Then, after they sinned, the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. So what they do? They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now there's a division. Now there's a fig leaf between the two of them. They found some way to cover their shame. Fig leaf. That'll solve it. They heard the sound of the Lord, God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves. Hiding from God, as if you can hide from God. Hiding from God in the garden God made for them. Hiding from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The reality is they haven't even been expelled from the garden and everything's lost already. They've lost the beauty of it all. 
They were made to be naked and unashamed. They were made to be fully known and fully loved. And now they're clothed and full with shame. They're separated from each other by fig leaves. And now they're separated by God, hiding from him in fear. Fear that God's going to really see them, know everything about them, know what they've done, and somehow he's going to condemn them. So they hide from each other and they hide from God. They lost true intimacy. Kurt Thompson, once again from that same book, says this, From the beginning, it has been God's purpose for this world to be one of emerging goodness. That was the purpose, emerging goodness, beauty and joy. Evil has wielded shame as a primary weapon to see to it that the world, that, that world never happens. The story is not that Adam and Eve sinned, brought shame into the world, and now you and I live in it all day, every day. The story is that shame is Satan's way of distracting you from the fullness of what God wants to do with your life. He attacked Adam and Eve, and he's attacking us. If Satan can keep you and me from being vulnerable with God and vulnerable with each other, then we've lost it. We're missing it. If Satan can keep shame in the center of your heart and Satan can convince you, if I were to truly be known and I let what happened in my life be exposed to the light, if he can make you think that thought, he's won because you missed it. Brene Brown, uh, she's a doctor, a research professor at the University of Houston. Some of you probably know a little bit about Brene Brown. She's written a number of books. She does TED Talks all over the place. She's phenomenal. She's a skeptic to the Christian faith. She writes and has done all of her research on shame and vulnerability. Brene Brown says this, looking at the data, she says shame is highly correlated to addiction Depression, violence, aggression, bullying, suicide, and eating disorders. Shame. Trying to bottle up sin on the inside. That's exactly what happens in Genesis. Very next scene, Adam and Eve have kids, what happens? Shame is present, murder. That's the next story. What after that? Rape. What happens after that? Bullying. What happens after that? Everything comes into Genesis. Why? Because there's shame between them and God. There's a lack of vulnerability. They're convinced that if God were to truly know me, the wickedness inside, he couldn't love me fully, carrying shame around. Brene Brown comes back, says, what can we do about this? Now, she's a skeptic. She says this, empathy is the antidote to shame. Empathy is the antidote to shame. She's so close to the truth. Brene Brown is so close to the truth. She's actually hit it on the head. She just didn't hit it hard enough. Empathy. What is empathy? Empathy is the ability to feel someone else's pain. It's the ability to step into their brokenness and say, I feel your pain. I know what you're going through. The most powerful thing you can ever say to someone is me too. Me too. I feel that. I know what you're, I know what you're experiencing. That secret you're hiding from, man, you don't think I have secrets that I keep? I'm in it with you. She says empathy is the, is the antidote to shame, but the reality is we need the great empathizer, not just empathy. See, see, here's what Jesus has done. Jesus is the one who knows your brokenness fully. You know why? He took it on his shoulders. There's nothing you have that Jesus doesn't know in full. He carried it. The guy hung on a cross because you have brokenness in your life. There's no secret you have that he didn't carry on his shoulders willingly on the cross. That's what he did. He died on a cross for you so that your brokenness could be exposed to the light. 
so that your shame wouldn't have to be kept inside anymore, but could be put to death on the cross. So you wouldn't have to walk in it anymore. So that he could create vulnerability and a pathway back to Adam and Eve in the garden where they were naked and unashamed once more with God. See, the great empathizer is the one who says, me too, I'm in there. I hung on the cross. I know that pain you're in. Look to me on the cross, says Jesus. And that's where you find the great empathizer who knows everything you're going through. That's exactly what Paul tells us, in, or the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 4. He says, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every way and respect has been tempted just as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, what should we do? With confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. This tells us something remarkable about Jesus. All that pain we carry around with us that we try to bottle inside, try to put on a good veneer as if we got something going on that someone else doesn't have. (sighs) Jesus took all of it on the cross and said there is a real consequence to be paid for your decision to go to make yourself Lord, to not follow God's law, to to say, you know what, I'm gonna make my own law, I'm gonna do my own way. Jesus says, I see all that brokenness, I take it on the cross and I'm making a way back to God on your behalf. Only Jesus can restore to us what Adam and Eve have done because only Jesus adequately deals with our sin by shedding his blood, not by bottling it up, but by exposing it on the cross, not by managing our sin, but by crucifying it and nailing it with Jesus to the cross, not by giving us a veneer of self-righteousness, but by placing his righteousness over you. It's his righteousness over you. Not by giving us what we deserve, expulsion from the garden, but by adopting us into his family and calling us sons and daughters of the king. Not by giving us new fig leaves to hide from one another, but by offering us a new birth where we are totally vulnerable once again with one another and with God. But this time in the arms of a father who says, I see you, I know you, and I love you fully. There's nothing you can bring to Jesus that he has not already nailed on the cross. You name it, it's on the cross. You can see it piled on his shoulders. When you read the story of Jesus and you look at the cross, see your own story, see your own brokenness up on his shoulders, and you see a man who says, I empathize with you because I'm feeling the pain you felt, and I brought you back to God. There's nothing you can hide from God that he is not fully exposed on the cross. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians, I'll then therefore boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses. See, when you get this, you boast in your weakness. You you hear that? 2 Corinthians, when you get what Jesus has done, you boast in your weakness. You don't hide it. Hiding it just leads to brokenness and you're bound to explode it sometime. But when like Paul, you can say, But by the grace of God, I've been saved from a life of bottling up shame and fear and sin. Man, I'm going to boast in my weakness. I got stories to tell. You got stories to tell. We got scars to share. Let's talk about them and then tell how Jesus saved us. That's the church. That's the church. You know, as I close, I think, I think a lot of us are Nicodemuses. In two different ways. I think some of us have genuinely been born again. Genuinely. You placed your faith in Jesus. He's the Lord of your life. You are living a life of of following Christ. And yet, you fall into the trap of bottling up your shame inside. Forgetting that Jesus has dealt with it fully on the cross. 
And so we hide. We hide from one another. We put fig leaves between each other, and then we wonder where, why, where the, where's the intimacy? Where's the power? Where the, where's the authenticity? You know, it's interesting. Most of us think of vulnerability as a weakness. You know, wouldn't that be weak if I were to share all my weaknesses? But have you ever seen anyone be truly vulnerable? Isn't it the most courageous thing you've ever seen? See, see the, the, the cross exposes our brokenness and it points us towards Jesus, the Savior. That's amazing. I'll boast in my weakness any day if I can lift up Jesus and what he's done for me. The other, day we're like, the other way we're like Nicodemus is this. Some of you have been following the rules your whole life and you're a good guy on the outside with a rotten stump. And Jesus has some words for you today. You don't get into the kingdom of heaven by being a good guy with a rotten stump because what you can be is you can be doing all the right things, all the good things, have everyone thinking really highly of you and really you're doing it for your own self-glory, your own self-praise, your own self-worth and, and just making a big name for yourself. And Jesus says, I see through that. You think Jesus doesn't see through that? You've got to be born again. You've got to place your faith in Jesus Christ. If you're in this room today and you've lived your whole life, you know, here's what's interesting. Some of you in this room right now are saying, man, I could never say that out loud that I'm just now realizing that I've never actually been born again. What would my family think? What would all my friends think? What would people in church think? I'm ashamed to say it. Isn't it ironic? That's the very thing some of us are thinking in this room right now. Everyone thinks I've been a follower of Christ for so long, but I'm just realizing I've never actually made Jesus Lord and experienced the fullness of the Spirit in my life, and I'm so full of shame to tell anyone, wait, that's Nicodemus. If you're in this room today, and you've been doing the good guy thing for so long, missing the beauty, the power, and the majesty of it all, and missing the Spirit filling your life and making your life on fire for Jesus. You just want to explode because Jesus has done it all for you, and you want that because you're tasting it, and you're saying, I'm, I'm in. Tomorrow, everything's different. I want you to be born again today. Today. Maybe you've been doing this good guy thing for decades and Jesus says, you got to be born again. You do it as simple as saying, Jesus, I'm tired of the old thing. I want the new thing. All my sins on the cross. I'm living for Jesus. He's my Lord. I'm not looking back. I'm throwing the world out. I'm living for Jesus. It's a new life. And Jesus says, you're adopted into his family. He fills you by the spirit and that's what you were made for. It's what you were made for. Listen to Jesus' words as he closes he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. You must be born again. Let me pray. Father, we pray right now for those in this room, oh, that need to hear that. I need to hear that over and over, Jesus. I need to just throw out this bottling up my secrets and my weaknesses as if, they're, as if they're weakness, God. No, they point to Jesus. God, I pray for healing in this room. I pray that we would be born again. I pray that we would be those whose weaknesses have been put on the cross and we boast in Jesus alone because it's all been exposed on the cross. That we would be like infants in our faith totally dependent on the Lord, naked and unashamed before the Father who we need to even take a breath in the morning, just like a brand new infant, just completely latched onto God. We can't move without him. That's what Jesus invites us into. I pray for new life in this room now that we be praying those prayers. In Jesus' name, amen.